Harvard Divinity School. Religion in Times of Earth Crisis, A Procession of Catastrophes, January 29, 2024. I'm Diane Moore, and I am the Associate Dean of Religion and Public Life here at Harvard Divinity School. And on behalf of myself and our Dean, Marla Frederick, I want to welcome you to the first in a series of six conversations in this faculty webinar series entitled Religion in Times of Earth Crisis. We are delighted and honored to have hundreds of you joining us for this conversation tonight uh, from around the country and around the globe. And it is our great pleasure to host this series of very important and timely conversations. Uh, about the religion in times of earth crisis. Please pause with me while I uh, give our land and people acknowledgement. Harvard University is located on the traditional and ancestral land of the Massachusetts, the original inhabitants of what is now known as Boston and Cambridge. We pay respect to the people of the Massachusetts tribe, past and present, and honor the land itself, which remains sacred to the Massachusetts people. This webinar is sponsored by Religion and Public Life, along with our colleagues at the Salata Institute for Climate Sustainability at Harvard University, the Center for the Study of World Religions, the Constellation Project, and Harvard X. And we're grateful for your co-sponsorship of this event. I also want to say that these webinars look very simple um, because of the incredibly hard work behind the scenes of many, many people to make these kinds of events run as smoothly as they do. So I just want to acknowledge our colleagues who have worked tirelessly to help not only uh, create the uh, technical, technical conditions for this to happen, but also the publicity and behind the scenes work. So from Religion and Public Life staff, I want to thank Rochelle Sway, Rima Tassi, Tammy Liao, and Natalie Campbell. From our, uh, I also want to acknowledge and thank uh, our colleagues at our Office of Communication who have uh, helped spread the word about this, about this webinar series, and particularly Christy Welch for her beautiful and remarkable uh, artistic uh, creations uh, for the posters that are publicizing this event and to Kama uh, Lord, our IT wizard, who is always on hand to help make sure that everything runs smoothly. Thank, thank you all for this incredible support that you offer us and for the opportunity to have this conversation with all of you. So this entire series is actually inspired by our speaker for tonight um, because she was the 2022 president of the American Academy of Religion, which is the body of professional scholars of religion. And she gave an incredible presidential address in 22, entitled, What is the Role of the Study of Religion in Times of Catastrophe? And I'm going to quote a brief uh, comment from that presidential address. This is from Myra Rivera. We need a more capacious sense of collectivity that can only emerge when we are willing to honor our stories and tell the truth about injustices that have shaped both environmental devastation and responses to it. We need a world of our many worlds. 
And another quote that have, has inspired all of us who are participating in this series is from the author uh, Amitabh Ghosh from his most recent book, The Nutmeg's Curse. This is the great burden that now rests upon writers, artists, filmmakers, and everyone else who is involved in the telling of stories. To us falls the task of imaginatively restoring agency and voice to non-humans. As with all the most important artistic endeavors in human history, this is a task that is at once ascetic and political. And because of the magnitude of the crisis that... Sorry about that. I'm back and <laughs> apologies. I don't know what happened but I'm glad to be back and I suspect that whatever happened, comma Lord fixed it. So with those quotes, uh, and before I introduce my friend and colleague, Myra Rivera, I just wanna give some logistics about our evening uh, time tonight. Professor Rivera will speak for about 45 to 50 minutes. Um, I want to remind everyone that this event is being recorded and the recording will be available Following, uh, following tonight in the next few days so people can either return to it or share the link with others. So now finally, Myra, please turn on your, my, your uh, video. It is my uh, great pleasure to introduce my friend and beloved colleague, Myra Rivera. Professor Rivera is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Religion and Latinx Studies at Harvard University. She works at the intersections between philosophy of religion literature and theories of coloniality, race and gender, with particular attention to Caribbean post-colonial thought. Her research explores the relationship between discursive and material dimensions of existence in shaping human embodiment and socio-material ecologies. Relevant to our conversation tonight, she is currently working on a project that explores the relationships between coloniality and ecology uh, ecological thought through Caribbean thought. And so I'll turn it over to you, Professor Rivera, for your presentation, of, uh, excuse me, a procession of catastrophes. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to um, be here, be part of this program, um, and have this opportunity to share with you a little bit of this ongoing um, research. So a procession of catastrophes. Climate change and the projections of catastrophe that issue from it have imparted an apocalyptic mood to contemporary cultural production. Artists and writers appeal to and recreate ancient and modern apocalyptic symbols. Reporters and scholars seem increasingly comfortable overlaying descriptions of ecological disasters with apocalyptic language. A headline from a piece in the New Yorker on September 2019 declared, the climate apocalypse is coming. But what does this mean, if anything, beyond religious modes of interpretation? Does it convey anything other than flat associations with disaster and the end of the world? Why turn to this old language 
at a time when scientific terms about climate circulate widely in public discourse? And what can apocalypse disclose in the context of ecological devastation? I have never liked apocalyptic stories and managed to avoid them for years. But even I found it impossible to avoid its reverberations close to home. On Wednesday, September 20th, 2017, Hurricane Maria, a category five storm devastated Puerto Rico, Dominica, and St. Croix. My family's chats about it started on Tuesday. We had lived through many hurricanes. Just weeks before, the category five Irma had skirted off the coast of Puerto Rico and caused major damage in Barbuda, St. Bart, and St. Martin. People from other islands were still in shelters in San Juan. Yet my family's homes were built for storms and well-stocked. So Tuesday, before the storm, our chat followed its typical patterns. They exchanged notes about preparations, shared pictures of the kids, places to buy ice, and made plans to get together soon. On Wednesday morning, I followed the chat and I, as I prepared my coffee, got dressed and walked to campus. But by 11 a.m., the tone of the conversation had shifted. It is blowing hard and my house is flooding, my brother said. Then my sister, someone tell me where the hurricane is. After that, absolute silence for days. Through social media, I was learning about the island-wide power outage and the collapse of communication systems, about blocked roads, lack of water and food shortages, rumors of death. I didn't see the devastation immediately, but I imagined it as an apocalyptic scene the roaring wind, the cries of trees as they fell, my brother driving through dark roads littered with fallen trees, wires, and traffic lights, trying to reach my sisters. Apocalyptic imagery had become oddly compelling. Not as a prediction of what would come but rather as an available idiom for expressing what had already happened, what had been happening. After Maria, news outlets described the events as an apocalypse. Titles like, Making it in the Apocalypse, Apocalypse and the Aftermath. An, an American apocalypse in Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico a month later is post-apocalyptic or typical. The dramatic headlines were often followed by analysis of the economic policies that had weakened the infrastructure 
turning disaster into catastrophe, as well as the lessons to be learned about the future or the future of other people in other places. Local writers and scholars emphasize different dimensions of catastrophe. They describe the devastation using the Greek sense of apocalypse, that is, lifting of a veil. Not a prediction of future events, but rather a revelation of realities hidden from view. The ecological consequences of a long history of political and economic dispossession. Jerimar Bonilla explains, quote, since Hurricane Maria, I have been trying to think and write about how the storm ripped the veil of Puerto Rico's colonial status. As much of those observing, as much for those observing from afar, who had perhaps never stopped to contemplate Puerto Rico's relationship to the United States, as well as for local residents who were forced into an affective reckoning with the kinds of structural violence they had been enduring for decades. My focus is thus not on what Hurricane Maria caused, but on what it revealed." End quote. The sudden destruction associated with the storm could only be understood in relation to the past as an event in the unceremoniously archived procession of our catastrophes, to use Edouard Glissant's words. 500 years of colonial history in which Puerto Rico has been a laboratory of economic and social experiments have materialized in soil and sea as much as in our flesh. Maria and the discussions that followed it prompted me to reflect on the ideas that gather themselves around the old term, apocalypse, especially in times of ecological crisis. I will share with you some of my exploration seeking to surface the sensibilities expressed in stories of those wrestling with the linked legacies of social and environmental catastrophes. So my, my presentation today has three parts. First, I will talk briefly about the Book of Revelation to remind us of its most striking images. It is a trailer of sorts, just enough to inflect my engagement with contemporary renditions of this story. I will then turn to the work of Puerto Rican painter, Patrick McGrath Muniz, whose paintings depict different perspectives on apocalypse. Part two will focus on apocalypse as denunciation of the harms of colonialism, extractivism, and economic injustice. Part three turns to apocalypse as lament, as a way of expressing the value of things we may lose, including the non-human beings in our community. 
So revelation, the, the, here's a trailer. The narrator, John, is in exile in the island of Patmos. He is in the spirit when he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. A door opened in heaven and the voice invites John to come up for they will show him what must take place. Most of the action of the book happens within that vision and readers have to adopt that heavenly perspective. So we're looking back at the earth as if from a distance. The opening scene describes the heavenly throne and it is dazzling. The one seated there looks like Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like emerald. Around the throne are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their hands. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. In addition to these stony figure creatures, there are fleshy living creatures, poor creatures that look like a lion, like an ox, like a human, like an eagle. They are full of eyes front and back watching. The one seated on the throne holds a sealed scroll. And in this slide, you see a medieval representation of that throne. John notices a lamb standing among the elders who begins opening the seals one by one. Seals one to four unleash the famous horsemen. On a white horse, a conquering rider. On a red horse, a rider permitted to take peace from earth. On a black horse, a horseman rides holding scales. He's instructed a quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarters of barley for a day's pay. But do not damage the olive oil or the wine. In other words, some will work all day for some barley while others protect luxury items. The rider of the fourth horse is death itself. It is too much. The sky rolls itself like a scroll and every mountain and island is removed from its place. The rich and powerful are running for shelter. The seventh seal begins with an eerie silence in heaven. Then, as each angel blows its trumpet, one-third of the earth burned. A third of the trees is burned up. All green grass is burned up. One third of the sea became blood, killing a third of the creatures of the sea. A third of the rivers and spring waters are polluted. 
the sun and the air are darkened by smoke. An eagle cries out in anticipation for what is yet to come. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. The heavenly curse proclaims that it is time to destroy those who destroy the earth. Then more destruction, the sea and the rivers, the sun and the air. A voice from the throne proclaims, it is done, but there is still more destruction to follow, much more, and a final judgment. Only then do we arrive breathless to the final scenes and its description of a new heaven and a new earth. The old earth has died and there is no mercy. And that's the end of my trailer. Climate crisis gives meaning, gives new meaning to Revelation's ecological scenes. Its procession of catastrophes commingles with our collective imaginaries about what is happening and what is expected to happen as a result of climate change. When I read in the New York Times that fires in Australia had turned the skies like blood, I conjured the sounds of trumpets. And there might be some historical connections beneath this resonance. Commentaries on Revelation suggest that the community behind this strange and violent book had some inklings of the relationship between imperial iconography, economic practices, and environmental destruction. Like us, the authors of Revelation borrow much of its imagery of ecological disaster from previous apocalyptic literatures. Indeed, apocalyptic unveiling is a practice of memory, as Jacqueline Hidalgo observes. For its representation of political and economic power, Revelation uses the symbols of the Roman Empire, mirroring and mocking the claims of Roman emperors to rule over earth, land, and sea encountering them with proof of God's own power over the cosmos. The book denounces the empire's economic exploitation by associating its commercial activities with fantastic creatures dressed in luxury. It represents economic injustice as one of the earth-destroying horsemen who protects luxury goods above livable wages. Quote, the wealth Rome squanders on luxuries from all over the world was obtained by conquest and plunder, a commentator observes. Revelation portrays the merchants weeping because no one buys their cargo anymore. And it singles out the kings of the earth the merchants and the mariners to be punished. Historians describe the ecological devastation that accompanied the empire's economic and military practices. Some of its elements 
would be familiar to those who study ec the ecological dimensions of colonialism. Deforestation for new crops, water and air pollution from mining, habitat destruction, territorial expansion once the soil is depleted, and so on. From the pers this perspective, Apocalypse showed the hidden side of the Roman Empire and revealed what had been happening. And Revelation expresses the desire to bring it all to an end, the imports, the merchants, and even the sea by which they all arrived. Despite its complexity and ambivalence, the apocalypse of John is often remembered just as a prediction of what will befall humanity. Some have dreamt of a new world that can spare us the troubles of this messy one, renouncing responsibility for whatever happens to air, trees, or sea. But many others appropriated it as judgment. Caribbean literature has at times adopted apocalyptic genres, but they do not assume divine figures commanding the natural elements or dispensing justice, but rather deploy it as critique of the present world order for its injustice and destruction. This tradition of apocalyptic imagination informs Juicio Capital, Capital Judgment, by Magrath Muñiz. The visual representation allows us to approach apocalypse here, not so much as a story moving from beginning to climax to end, as an unveiling of structures underlying long-lasting patterns of destruction. Modeled after altar pieces, the painting follows the classical pattern of the Last Judgment. Juicio Capital demarcates the universe, heaven, earth, and hell, using horizontal and vertical lines to mimic the traditional form of the triptych altar piece with three panels and a perdella underneath. The script above the perdella reads from left to right, to the heavens, the first world. We made our paradise and hell on this earth and to hell, the third world. The art artist reimagines the fire in traditional iconography of hell in relation to both industrial far animal farming and the burning of fossil fuels. Both humans and animals have been condemned by its flames. At the top of the triptych panels, at the highest level of the hierarchy of being, 
are representatives of the global political and economic powers. Christopher Columbus sits next to Pope Alexander VI, who holds two papal bulls. The first grants the kings of Castile and Leon and their descendants all dominions, cities, camps, places and villages and all rights and jurisdictions and all islands and mainlands found and to be found. The second bull asserts that Amerindians do have souls. Columbus and Alexander VI are joined by Samuel Jackson, nicknamed Indian Killer, Uncle Sam and Burger King. On the opposite corner, Superman sits next to Milton Friedman, Coca-Cola's Santa Claus, John Adams, and a figure wearing a gas mask evoking World War II. There is no one like Jasper or Carnelian in this throne. There is no lion, ox, or eagle either. There is no emerald rainbow. If this throne is dazzling, it is based on these historical actors' claims of dominion over earth, land, and sea. In the ascending column, a ladder connects heaven and earth. Money ensures upward movement. The frame is marked by apples and Starbucks logos, recognizable symbols of capitalism and its plunders. He had cartoon characters like Richie Rich and Mr. Monopoly suggest that elements of this system are make-believe. The angel on the left panel is depicted in ascending pose, about to lift a child higher into the heavens. In the right panel, an angel keeps immigrants away, the Statue of Liberty barely visible in the background. The landscape in the central panel is reminiscent of the mountains in the southern region of Puerto Rico, where the artist lived. At the center are the seven trumpets and the notorious horsemen. Instead of animals full of eyes, as in Revelation, we find an angel crowned with surveillance cameras, watching the sound of the trumpet is amplified. And yet if we pay attention, beyond the loud sounds and the scrutinizing cameras, we can see protesters articulating different visions. Juicio Capital represents the planetary scope of catastrophe, but it foregrounds the unequal distribution of its effects. The temporal perspective is just as encompassing. It places ecological catastrophe in a continuum with old cataclysms of colonialism and its economic and ontological legacies. Compressing the temporal distance between Columbus, Samuel Jackson, and Burger King, 
to foreground the continuities between the conquest of a territory, the genocide of native people, and global capitalism. Juicio Capital also returns us to a tradition of visual interpretations of apocalypse, but it places revelations squarely in the realm of human affairs, foregrounding its often forgotten economic and ecological concerns and reactivating its affective charge, not to single out some for punishment, but to shake viewers out of our complacency with the world as it is. It denounces the authorities that claim mastery over the cosmos as Rome once did, yes, but also the systems and patterns of life that have been destroying the world. The unveiling itself is the judgment. The outraged tones of these and other adaptations of Apocalypse, with their loud sounds and striking images, may lead us to miss the deep sense of loss from which they spring. The Apocalypse of John utters its cry through the voice of an eagle, woe to the inhabitants of the world, and perhaps most poignantly as an eerie silence in heaven. In the aftermath of Maria, Puerto Rican writer Eduardo Lalo experienced this closer to the ground. I remember going to Rio Piedras and feeling the silence he wrote. It was not because there weren't people around. In fact, there were, but there were no birds. And it's the most uncanny feeling you can have because that's the sound of death. Everything was dying. This eerie silence impinges upon our intellectual practice today. Lalo adds, quote, the real object of the literary world is the unnameable. You can put into words all the government's irresponsibility and its corruption, and people do that every day, but you cannot use words to capture the pain especially collective pain. Our pain is not only a personal, but also a historical pain, end quote. And I wonder if this longing to express what is ultimately unnameable makes the return to religious imagery not just understandable, but necessary. Depictions of apocalypse may depart from the familiar genre of last judgment. That is the case of Alba's dream, also by McGrath Muniz. Catastrophe is just as central in Alba's dream as it is in Juicio Capital. 
But in Alba's dream, the mood is starkly different. Flooded streets are represented in the monochromatic tones of a seemingly unfinished background. In contrast, the images of Alba and the dog are well-defined, depicted in vibrant colors. The gold halos, which Magrath Muniz paints using Renaissance techniques, give the painting the look of an actual icon. The representation of Alba as a Christian saint and the painting as an icon intimate the permeability of the boundaries between the sacred and the human, between the object and the subject for which icons were known. As Glenn, Glenn Pierce observes, the relational sympathy between Christians and their icons suggests that distinctions between humans, objects, and the world were sometimes blurred. In style and in content, Alba's dream accentuates relational sympathy and the permeability of boundaries, drawing us toward the more than human. Alba's dream is modeled after iconography of Saint Christopher. According to the story, Christopher was a very tall and strong man who served God by helping people cross a dangerous river. On a stormy night, a child came to request his help to cross the river. As he was crossing, the child became heavier and heavier, as heavy as the world. Once they reached the shore, the child revealed himself as Christ. Saint Christopher, patron saint of travelers, was represented with a human canine body, crossing the boundaries and blurring the human-non-human -human divide. The human in Alba's, the woman in Alba's dream does not appear to be particularly tall or strong, but the weight she carries can feel as heavy as the world. Instead of crossing a tempestuous river, she carries a creature across floodwaters, containing who knows what toxins, what sharp objects. Both Alba and the dog are sanctified and utterly vulnerable. McGrath Muniz explains, Alba's dream was the first painting I did right after finding out about my lost studio in Puerto Rico. A woman rescuing a dog from the aftermath of a hurricane is inspired by my cousin, Alba Muniz, 
who saved the lives of many animals in need through the Santuario de Animales, San Francisco de Assis. This one was more difficult to paint, he told me. Rather than opening a door in heaven from which to look down at the earth, it gives us a model for regarding the world from the place where we stand, even in dangerous waters. The focus of this painting is irreducibly particular. The effects of climate change are faced by this woman in this particular island, saving justice dog. From the perspective of capitalism, as well as from the calculus of global climate, the act of rescuing a dog is pointless, an over-expenditure that will not stave off catastrophe. The icon is an appropriate form for this kind of representation in which one life is enough, where the quotidian opens up to the sacred. Alba's dream is not about the future, but about the present, the significance of one act that gives duration to the present. There may be no trumpets to announce them, but such moments may reveal the relations that constitute each life, the threads that link us to the earth. There is a scientific and an ideological language for what is happening to the weather, but there are hardly any intimate words, Zadie Smith writes. We lack intimate words or images that allow us to access the local sadness in the face of loss. I too long to express the weight of the threats of climate change as they affect the small island that claims me. We need genres of writing and art to recognize the intimate losses that are easily eclipsed by global descriptions of climate change. It is tempting to say, as myth does, that the ever more frequent tropicals, depressions, storms, hurricanes, droughts, and landslides in the Caribbean do not fall in the category of ontological argument, or of theology, I may add. But I find it hard to draw such a clear line between the existential and the ontological, between apocalypse and local sadness, between anticipation and memory, between genres of judgment and those of lament. The intimate loss of things we loved, this is Smith's phrase, steers collective memories of other losses and connects them to longer histories of disregard and their guiding worldviews. Mourning can be an active form of rage, as Raquel Salas Rivera suggests. 
it also allows us to appreciate the love of other communities for their ecological homes. Through those connections across time and space, we come to recognize that without a critique of the systematic dimensions of ecological devastation, lament risks losing its ethical force. Rather than dismissing apocalyptic genres as I had done so often, we may see their potential as critical interventions. Apocalyptic genres can help see the destructive forces at work in the world as it is. Forces that may operate slowly, quietly, until we find ourselves on the brink of a catastrophic event or many. Apocalyptic genres may describe the drama of planetary history as if from a distance, spatial and temporal, and confront us with the troubling persistence of injustice. They may, may disrupt and disturb us, shaking our complacency, breaking our enchantment with systems that destroy the earth. Yet other genres of revelation may be intimate and subdued, attentive to the weight of the present. They can express lament at what we already lost, at all we cannot save, acknowledging them in their precious particularity, and invite us to acts of care beyond the usual calculus of returns. A theological imagery may remind us of the generative power of retelling old, tattered stories in new contexts, allowing us to see differently, looking through the rubble of ancient metaphors and relics, we can reactivate the power of religious symbols to speak to crises that are everyday languages seem barely able to reach. Like icons, theological images and stories can turn us toward the unnameable. Thank you. I just, uh, on behalf of all of us, I wanna thank you for that astonishingly beautiful commentary um, and the evocation of possibility that is uh, threaded throughout with the possibility of what it means to evoke our imaginations mm -hmm. in the intimate spaces of our lives, which is so contrary to the large-scale neoliberal framing that is mm -hmm. so prominent among us. Mm -hmm. I'm going to invite uh, the audience members to please uh, post questions in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And while folks are doing that, uh, Professor Rivera, if you can, I know that, that several members of the, of the audience have read your American Academy of Religion presidential address and wonder if you can talk to us about the relationship between those comments and what you're current um, thinking relevant to your, your your beautiful commentary this evening. 
what's your own thinking of your own trajectory and how to make sense of these times? Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, my my project actually started um, with something like this, what I shared today, um, with the wrestling of with what had happened in Puerto Rico. Um, and and the feeling that opening that the the pieces of art, especially Alba's dream, which was the first one I encountered, uh, what they opened um, in me in terms of possibilities of speaking to what what had happened in its specificity and the affective elements of that in my life. Um, and for the for the American Academy of Religion, uh, I I needed to speak more broadly about um, the audience, about the members of the American Academy of Religion, about um, the the study of religion in um, in general, and I found myself thinking about how to connect the specificity of this experience, the experience of Puerto Ricans, um, and how to how to envision a collective work emerging from the specificity. So rather thinking about the collective, I wanted to, in, even in the practice of writing, to think about how do we think about our collective work in ways that don't begin from from above, don't begin with universalizations, but rather that begin to imagine what it would mean to tell our stories and draw connections from the particularity of our stories. Um, so in some ways, this is um, what I shared today is much more grounded in the context of Puerto Rico and in my own um, experience. And the AAR was an invitation to bring forth more, more of those stories, more of those experiences. Beautiful, thank you. And again, apologies, I'm, I'm clearly having some technical difficulties here. I'm not sure what's going on. Um, there was a, a, a wonderful question in the, in the uh, Q&A that I no longer have access to because I was booted out but I wonder if, if you could uh, access it and might want to respond. Okay, here, here's another, but there was another question that I, is no longer there, I'm not sure why, but if the person, um, again, I just saw it briefly before I got kicked off, but here's one from uh, Tara Smith. The dog seems to have a halo around its head and the woman uh, a moon or sunlight. Can you speak to what the painter may have meant by this light appearance behind the heads of the living in the midst of catastrophe? I think you were referencing that around icons, but perhaps people in the audience um, would be useful to see the symbolism of the long history of icons would be helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the painting is just a beautiful painting and was the first one I saw and one of the things that's striking is how he paints both figures, Alba and, and the dog, both 
with halos. And the two, the two types of halos were, were used in relation to the divine. So there's no really um, theological difference in, in between the two. But it's, that's precisely what's, what's striking, right? That the, that the image um, shows that both the dog and the woman are sanctified in this, in this moment. Um, in this moment of utter vulnerability. And and so so I think that I think about both the the meaning, but also what it means to learn the to practice the practice of creating an icon. So the the very material practice of learning how to how to create these halos. And to do that, to shed light on these very difficult and very revealing moments. So that I found profound. Absolutely. And that, that image, the intimacy of the of the look between the the dog and, and Albo is just so powerful. Um, and your your comment that we don't have um, we lack intimate words to engage these intimate losses mm -hmm. and there's a whole other arena of maybe our words are too um, limiting mm -hmm. to capture this, but mm -hmm. images such as that beautiful painting, I think speak volumes. So other forms of imagination and of representation, I think is also what uh, is so critical in these, in these times to spark our, the possibilities of how to think in fresh ways about what we think we already know. Yeah. And it it also connects images with stories, right? And I thought, I mean, there were so many stories. Um, I, I remember a friend of mine who spent long months without electricity and, you know, there was this shortage of food and he took to feeding the bees that had that were coming around his house that were just as lost by not finding flowers as everybody else was by finding the grocery stores empty. So, so he dedicated himself to this practice of, of um, feeding the bees. Others went out looking for birds and trying to see if they could rescue them so i find that very often the frameworks we have you know of, um sometimes even the the cal the calculation of climate by themselves we of course need the calculations um but but we need more than that um to to capture and that the weight of those moments. Oh, absolutely. What will move us? It's, I, it, it just seems we, we hear time and time and time again, how, um, and we're, and we're experiencing time and time again, how all the quote unquote facts of the catastrophes, the, you know, the measurement and the predictions and the um, catastrophic weather experiences that we are engaged with somehow and 
scientists particularly I understand are, are perplexed like why why won't those facts like mobilize us mm-hmm. um and I think you're you're capturing the reality of that so beautifully both out of I, I think a sense of incapacity to engage with the enormity of this mm-hmm. and until we engage with it in the intimate spaces that you are calling us to do um which moves us we know great artists know that the particular is universal through those particular stories. It touches us in ways that exposes possibility that otherwise we cannot grasp with facts and figures. Wonderful. We have, have, go ahead. Yeah. And I do think that we need that moment of critique too, right? Uh, Particularly when we're talking about um the big picture the 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 patterns that continue to replicate itself right it, so the for for that for the critiques of capitalism the critiques of colonialism the critiques of the ongoing injustice we do take a step back to look at at the at the big picture um so it, it offers us a different uh, a different uh, mode of engagement that I think it's also necessary. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Because otherwise we are kind of lost in a sea of particularities that are not related, but of course they are profoundly. We, we have a question from uh, Kevin Colley. Thank you, Kevin. Um, and Myra, you might want to pull up the, um, the Q&A just because he's going to ask us about you ask you about a quote from Thomas Berry. Can you comment on this thought from Thomas Berry? If the central pathology, this is the quote, quote, if the central pathology that has led to the termination of uh, Cenozoic is the radical discontinuity established between the human and the non-human, then the renewal of life on the planet must be based on the continuity between the human and the other human as a single integral community. Once this continuity is recognized and accepted, then we will have fulfilled the basic condition that will enable the human to become more present to the earth in a mutually enhancing manner. And that's, uh, that's from Thomas Berry. That's beautiful, right? And I mean, I think, I think that that we need to slow down to get there. Right mm-hmm. to slow down to, um, to get at that intimate, um, pos- the possibility of intimate relationships, uh, or even or even the, what it would mean to lose them. I, I always think um, or remember when I was a child, one of the things we did often. Um, was to go to the beach and look at the corals and the sea urchins um, because their their colors were so astounding and so wonderful. They are not there anymore where we went to see them. And um, and I I think there I think it's um, Judith Butler who talks about anticipatory mourning, right? Um, the ways in which we begin to recognize how members of our community who are not human 
um, you know, the lizards, the coquis, uh, are such an integral part of our communities. And I think um, we we need to incorporate that in our in our language and in our representations. But I think it's also important to, as we were saying, to think about what are the conditions of our world as it is constituted that make that so so very difficult. Right, right. I'm so so struck. Uh, one of the one of the frameworks that I think are embedded in the kind of uh, social fabric of, of modern West Western infused discourse is this even sacredness, I will say, of the autonomous human, the notion of the of our autonomy as human beings and the privileges that we as humans have over other forms of life. And I think that that narrative of of both autonomy and hierarchy is so deeply presumed mm -hmm. in so many parts of our discourses that it is just a given. It's considered self-evident. It seems so critical to break that open, both the notion of autonomy as well as the notion of the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And just wonder uh, if you have thoughts about um, what the study of religion can invite for that, given mm -hmm. particularly the ways that religion is also the author of those hierarchies and those assumptions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and in, in the, I think that the, the work um, has, the work of, of kind of revising our ways of imagining the world has to touch on every aspect of our imaginary, right? Um, and, and the, you know, from, from what does it mean to be a human being? I think that that we need to completely rethink what it means to be human. So the so the the approach cannot be just focused on on the climate or the temperature or or even animals in and of themselves. I think part of the difficulty of the task is that we need to rethink who we are as as humans. Um, and as, as Sylvia Winter um, says, we need to re rethink the idea of conforming to one model of being human, which has been imposed through history of colonialism and capitalism, right? The productive, dominant, independent model of being human and strive not just for one modality of being human, but for, for a plurality of genres of being human that include our our ecologies that include the non-human members of our of our communities. So I don't think it's it's one form of being human, but rather to infuse creativity in our in our communities uh, to to arrive at better ways of 
understanding our aims as people. Absolutely. And and just the 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 reality and the power of our relationality. Um as which again is often difficult to capture, but is so essential to all, all of us. And the again, the depictions that you were uh, that you invited us to consider are just so powerfully representative of that. Mm-hmm. We, we have a, a similar follow-up question here from uh, Stockton uh, Blanco. Thank you. Um, so how can, how can humans approach the stories of the more than human, non-human world in the context of the climate crisis with respect? I, I love the with respect um, question. Are these stories always related to humans or is there any space for stories in crisis that don't include humans? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I think the, we, ha- we have to recover stories that we have left behind that have been marked as um, too primitive, um, not modern enough, um, and and have been forgotten. So I think part of part of the process will entail rethinking about what are the stories we tell and when. I think someone someone asked a question about the apocalypse um, and the way the divine in the Book of Revelation has kind of the authority over the elements and and that's one of the issues with the book right that that um the issue of what's the agent who's the agent behind all the all the disasters in the book is endlessly debated among biblical scholars um but one of the um compelling discussions about it that i have found is that precisely the the authors are trying to counter the empire's uh, power, claims to power with with that claim for God's own power over the earth. But in the process, at some point, it creates a confusion um, of whether the, the God in the book is, also one that is um destructive um so so whether there's a competition between empire and uh, jackie hidalgo calls it the alter empire um and but i'm what i'm interested in um is is what's happening in the earth and what how a community that probably experienced the environmental devastation was imagining something happening, right? Was imagining or portraying what had been happening and what could be the long-term consequences of that. Um, And I think it's that piece that I I find um, the, the artist gravitating toward. Um, the the aspects of that history of representations of environmental catastrophes and what they what they have to do with both geopolitics or 
colonialism in the case of the Book of Revelation and economic practices. So that those dimensions of, of um, colonialism and economics as they relate to environment is a connection that I'm that is important for me because it's so important in the Caribbean context. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. Here's a here's a question from uh, Michelle Erdensana uh, that uh, Salas uh, Rivera quote mourning can be an active form of rage is incredibly moving. And how do you wrestle with rage and its destructive but also creative or liberating potential in the context of apocalypse? Thank you for that question. I mean, this is this is what I've been trying to to think with, right? Can we? Because I I see rage in the in the painting Juicio Capital, right? But that rage um, is not a celebration of violence or an invitation to punishment or anything like that, no. but rather is translated in. And that 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 act of unveiling, look what we have created, um, and look what it has been producing in the world. Um, and I see that like emerging from that. Um, but that quote from Salas Rivera um, is from a book of poetry she published right after the hurricane, which is just an incredible book. Um, and that phrase just stayed with me what does it mean to think of mourning as that as that active probably public act of denunciation as well so the two things don't have to be opposite to each other in the in the aftermath of the of the hurricane in puerto rico there was um a reluctance to account properly how many people had died. And of course, we've seen this happen so many times, right? Um, and there was a collective rage about it that was intimately connected to the mourning of the people who had died and artists and writers took it upon themselves to account, to give an account mm -hmm. um, of, of what had happened and to give a number of the people who had died. And I think that was one example of, of mourning, public mourning as an act that was also rage. Mm -hmm. I, I love the, I, that quote is is incredibly powerful. Thank you for introducing it. It also reminds me uh, Beverly Harrison in one of her um, uh, social Christian social social ethicists, feminist Christian social ethicists, um, had a, gave a talk at, uh, as president of the Christian Association of Christian Ethicists entitled "The Power of Anger in the Work of Love," mm -hmm. and it just seems like. How mm -hmm. can we not rage, but to the, exactly your commentary, to use mm -hmm. that powerful energy of rage mm -hmm. to um, 
be constructive around imaginative possibilities. Uh, and those are the choices we have. Mm -hmm. so, and the, uh, the different modalities that can take, right? The, absolutely. From the public uh, protest demanding the proper accounting of, of the people to the feeding the bees. Both are mourning and rage and love at the same time. That's right. That's right. Uh, Dan McCannon, uh, who will be our presenter next week, um, has a, a very uh, powerful question. Thank you, Dan. Uh, to you, Professor Rivera, you've offered a beautiful example of the right way to use apocalyptic motifs in response to climate catastrophes. How might you or we bring this material to the communities that are currently using these same motifs in unhelpful ways? That's a tough one. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, particularly um, with, with the question of, with the book of Revelation, like that, um, that has taken these, um, such a strong, uh, force um, in in certain circles, and I think, but I think that that part of the what I find compelling is is this thinking about what what had been happening in in the context of the Book of Revelation, and I think it's. It's been fascinating to me. I've been doing research on, on different appropriations of apocalypse and interpretations of apocalypse throughout the Caribbean, um, throughout the 20th century in art, um, visual art and, and literature. And they seem to be right on um, in terms of that kind of connection, that sense of recognition that something was happening there that we, we might understand. There's a poet, um, Puerto Rican poet, his name is Jack Agüero, who wrote a, a series of sonnets to the horsemen of the apocalypse. And one of the sonnets, he says that um, that the horsemen have become gray among us, having been among us for so long. So long. <laughs> um, so, so I I wonder about the power of of these images that just pull one thread of the story, um, and and highlight it in ways that can connect to experiences. Uh, the some of the writers I quoted at the beginning were using the term revelation it became such a big term and it wasn't they weren't talking about apocalypse but the term revelation became such an important one great well, wonderful connections um John Kidd is asking 
I've become more attentive to the importance of lamentation, but do not hear or see it in public expression. Where do you see it and how should we express it? I think the, when using again the, the example of Puerto Rico right after the hurricane yeah. and the, the reluctance of the government to acknowledge the, the number. One of the artists in Puerto Rico, um, Antonio Martorell, um, created a public um, installation that was like a funerary, mimicked a funerary home. Um, and he painted the numbers and a number for each person. Yeah. And then he invited the public to come. Um, and I, I thought that was so powerful because he used art. It was all an art exhibit. Um, and, and created the space that was officially denied, that was refused to people. Um, and I think I have found these, these spaces of lamentation both in in literature and in art, not so much in politics. Um, and, but perhaps we can, I think, be more intentional about incorporating the dimensions of mourning and lament um, in the spaces in which, to which we have access. I think, I think we are, um, in, in some religious traditions, there are liturgies of lament, right? Um, but I, I think too, what are the other spaces in that where, where lament can, can be made public? Mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's histories of this, um, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm thinking of the, the powerful symbolism uh, during the, the AIDS epidemic of um, multiple different artistic uh, mm -hmm. displays that mm -hmm. tried to give individual, mm -hmm. you know, uh, individual understanding to the particularity of the lives lost and not just the massive numbers. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're exactly the same talking about what happened in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Two other questions. One is a just a very specific question. Um, can and this is from Jim Corson. Can you tell us what Alba is holding in her right hand and what the symbol on it represents? And it was mm -hmm. woman symbol. And yeah, and I I forgot it is it is a it is a Greek goddess. Um, but I forgot which one it is. I that was my my sense too, and I also yeah. can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, apologies, but yeah, uh, I should look it up again. Yeah. Greek. That that was my sense too, and but I cannot remember which one. If anyone if anyone knows, please put it in the uh, in the Q and A. Um, I think a, an appropriate ending would be um, 
by an anonymous tend, uh, attendee who wants to know, uh, Professor Rivera, what uh, do you see as the story of Puerto Rico now, post-2017, and an emergence and perhaps reorganizing in powerful ways? There's different um, contrasting trends. There is the, the trend of, uh, what is it called? Companies seeing um, opportunities to no. invest. Development. Uh, yeah, and so yeah. land grabbing. Yeah. Uh, for tourism, mm -hmm. uh, you know, buying big swaths of land, um, making it more difficult for Puerto to afford housing, etc. So it be it's it's always the predatory capitalism rushes in after a disaster. But there's also been. Um, incredible energy, um, especially among younger generations around things like sustainability and um, food sovereignty. Um, so, so even people who've moved, who were, had established themselves in the United States have returned to the island to start projects about sustainability that are community oriented, right? There's, um, there's an organization in Puerto Rico who had been um, an environmental, started with an environmental movement trying to protect the island in, from mining. Um, and they had always been, you know, they're in the mountainside, um, always cultural and ecological and had programs to teach people to sustainable sustainable agriculture based on um, indigenous practices and solar energy, etc. When the hurricane came, they had electricity. Uh, or non, no one in the town, I mean, in most of the island didn't have electricity. They had electricity. They had food because some of the things they, they had been planting and teaching people how to plant survived the hurricanes. That's why native peoples cultivated them. So they opened the doors to the community and they've continued to do incredible work with, particularly with solar, trying to move away from efforts of companies to control also solar and do individual and teach the community how to, how to uh, install, how to uh, maintain the solar panels, pushing for solar panels to be installed in house roofs rather than taking up land that could be for agriculture, etc. And like that, there's many, many other organizations. Um, and one of the one of the things that that I find promising is that they are all 
um, thinking about how to address these from local knowledge, from local histories, from uh, prioritizing those who need it the most. A beautiful way to end um, with the uh, and and our 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 work, all of us in the room, to think about what is exactly that shift of priorities mm -hmm. um, with this powerful example that you just left us with, and the difference that that will make um, relevant to living in this crisis moment, mm -hmm. being confronting it, addressing it. Um, and being moved deeply through this experience of of lament to realize and recommit ourselves to what we cherish and what gives life makes life worth living. So it's really powerful, uh, Professor Rivera. Thank you so much for these really provocative and insightful and um, imaginative ideas i'm so excited for this new arena of work that you've been that you're focusing on and look forward to continuing these conversations thank you thank you very much for the invitation and for everybody for attending tonight thanks well and for those in the room uh the series will continue we have uh five different presentations from faculty at harvard divinity school and then we will end the series with a plenary conversation where Professor Rivera will return with our colleagues and the six of us will be engaged in a conversation to look at the themes through the series, see what we have um, discovered, what next steps might be for all of us. So I hope that all of you in the room will uh, come again uh, to our next presentation where Professor Dan McCannon will be presenting next, next Monday uh, February 5th, and he will be presenting on ancestors and climate in our Boston backyard. So please do join us for that conversation and for the rest of the series. Thank you again, Professor Rivera. Thank all of you. Uh, thank you all again. And thank you to my wonderful colleagues for helping create this opportunity. Good night, everyone. Sponsors, Religion and Public Life at Harvard Divinity School, the Salata Institute for Climate and Sustainability at Harvard University, the Center for the Study of World Religions, the Constellation Project, and Harvard X. Copyright 2024, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.